I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas, about philosopher Charles Taylor. A Canadian philosopher has won the world's richest annual prize. Charles Taylor is a 75-year-old professor emeritus at McGill University. He was named winner of this year's Templeton Prize for progress toward research or discoveries about spiritual realities. The award is worth more than $1.5 million U.S. Knowledge began to be seen in the light of a certain number of basic ideas and images. We know the world through the ideas we have in our mind. Now, my whole goal in life has been to show that this is nonsense. This is not the way it actually works. Because we are, above all, bodily agents who only actually develop some kind of sense of what it is to be in the world by starting off as babes interacting with it. That's what knowledge is really deeply based on. The awarding of the 2007 Templeton Prize to Charles Taylor celebrated a philosophical career that has won him readers and recognition around the world. Born in Montreal and for many years a professor at McGill, Taylor has published more than 20 books. Many other books and special journal issues have been devoted to commentary on his work. He's been translated into 22 languages and lectured from Berkeley to Berlin and Jerusalem to New Delhi. One of the keynotes of his philosophy has been the idea he just expressed, that we know our world through our engagement in it, not just as detached observers forming pictures in our minds. This is an idea that has marked his life as well as his teaching. He's been engaged in Canadian politics, standing for Parliament as an NDP candidate in four federal elections during the 1960s. He's helped to define Canadian multiculturalism. When relations between immigrant communities and the French majority grew strained in Quebec in 2007, it was to Charles Taylor that the provincial government turned for help appointing him the co-chair of the Taylor-Bouchard Commission. And in his philosophy, he's always reached out to his readers. His style is genial and expansive, and he engages with questions of contemporary concern, as in his recent and magisterial A Secular Age, where he deals with the place of religion in modern society. Today on Ideas... David Cayley begins a five-hour series on the thought of this influential Canadian philosopher. In this first episode, Charles Taylor looks back to his childhood in Quebec, to his education, and to the influences that formed his thought. Here's David Cayley. Charles Taylor was born in 1931 in Montreal. His father had come from Toronto to try his fortune in what was then still the economic capital of Canada, and he eventually became a partner in a successful steel manufacturing business. Taylor's mother came from an old Quebec family. The household and the family were bilingual. We had this family where the norm was that everybody spoke the two languages, right? And that was a little bit of a lonely way of being in those days. Now, you see, it's a wonderful thing. When I look at my grandchildren and their generation, everybody is in that position. But then you kind of uh, looked askance at by all sides because you were kind of in between. However... The ideology of the family was, this was a better way to be, I guess everybody always does that with their own way of being, that you sort of you had two outlooks instead of one, you were kind of in a better position, and that also carried for people interested in politics some sense of you have a task, you have a task of explaining each to each and of somehow avoiding these terrible standoffs that can occur from time to time. So in Quebec, we always felt very uncomfortable when things got really tight between <laughs> the rest of Canada and Quebec or the English and French and, and so on. One of the times that things got tight 
was when Canada joined the Second World War. Charles was then a boy of not quite eight years old. Most of French-speaking Quebec opposed Canada's entering the war. Taylor's grandfather, Charles-Philippe Beaubien, a senator and an eminent political figure in Quebec, took the opposite view, and this drew the whole family into the controversy. My grandfather, my father's, my mother's father, was one of the relatively rare Quebecois who was very much for entering the war and even for conscription. And that's because his <laughs> this position that we were all in, in his case, it kind of worked itself out to be, he was a kind of Voltairean, anti-clerical, tremendously admiring of France. And we were brought off with the sense that the center of civilization, it was obvious, was Paris. And I actually remember, as one of the great traumas, the day in which France asked for an armistice in 1940, the German invader. It was just inconceivable. We couldn't take it in. I mean, it was just like, it must have been like Augustine felt in the 4th, 5th century, you know, when Rome was conquered by the Goths. It was something, something similar. It can't happen. So we all rushed to believe in de Gaulle. Unlike a lot of Quebecois who were a little bit leaning Vichy, we were totally Gaullist because we couldn't allow the fact that France could be somehow over. <laughs> the French, French Republic, no, could never die. So that was, put him in a very particular situation, a lot of, a lot of hostility in the family because he was taking a side that wasn't the majority side. Senator Beaubien divided the family with his support for Canada's declaration of war on Germany and his support for General de Gaulle's exiled Free French forces in London, rather than the collaborationist regime at Vichy in France. Things got worse with the so-called conscription crisis. At the beginning of the war, Prime Minister Mackenzie King had pledged not to introduce conscription for overseas service. But in 1942, he went back to the people in a plebiscite, asking to be absolved from this pledge and left free to introduce conscription for overseas service, if necessary. Let no one tell you that Canada is in this war to uphold any selfish cause of empire. It is not true. We are fighting to preserve our freedom and our national existence to defend our homes and families from an enemy drawing ever nearer. We do well to remember that against the piratical ambitions of Germany and Japan alike, the one sure shield of defense is actual combat in the front line of battle, whether on land, at sea, or in the air. Prime Minister Mackenzie King, addressing the country through the national radio network of the CBC in April of 1942. His plea did not persuade the majority of French-speaking Quebecers to change their minds, and the conscription crisis continued until the end of the war. There was a conscription crisis in the First World War when Quebecers felt, why are we being conscripted to fight for the British Empire? And that, as it were, played over into the Second World War, where the majority of Quebecois didn't sort of see this, this is the battle between <laughs> evil and good, between barbarism and civilization, but it's another British imperial enterprise, and we don't want to be forced to go. The mayor of Montreal was eventually put in detention because he advised people not to register. So Camille Oud. Camille Oud, that's yeah. right. And he spent the whole war getting very much thinner, actually, didn't want to go <laughs> in detention camp. Well, so a lot of Quebecois were tremendously indignant about this. You see, my grandfather was in a different minority position. And, you know, it's very interesting because years later, there was a 1980 referendum on independence. And I remember the same thing happening in the sense that within families, there was this tremendous breach 
the, so that I remember in you know Christmas 1980, some of them couldn't even come together <laughs> celebrate Christmas because they'd taken different stands on on the issue of Quebec independence. This was so reminiscent of my childhood. I mean, I was reliving the same kind of atmosphere. It was that kind of very, very tense, at least in our family atmosphere, because we were, you know, our family, his brothers, his cousins, and so on, were not necessarily agreeing with him on, on his position. The conscription crisis introduced Charles Taylor to what, in a sense, would become his characteristic position, the man in the middle. In both philosophy and politics, as you will hear, he's been a bridge builder, a student of how societies hold together, an advocate of dialogue, standing against polarized and simplistic styles of thought. But at this point, he was still a boy and a budding scholar at Selwyn House, a private boys' school in Westmount, from which he graduated in 1946. One of the greatest teachers I've ever had, which I had in the sixth form of Selwyn House, was an English poet called Patrick Anderson, and he taught us the English Romantic poets, and just at that age, you know, I was 14 and so on, I was completely completely bowled over, particularly by Keats. I mean, it's just something that, you know, set my life in a certain direction. Charles Taylor's love of poetry would be lifelong. And not just Keats and the Romantics, but also modernist masters like Eliot, Rilke, and Ceylon. Music and prose literature were also shaping influences. And this taste would continue to develop as he moved from Selwyn House whose curriculum ended at grade 11, to Trinity College School, or TCS, in Port Hope, Ontario, where he completed his secondary education. I used to write poetry in those days, and I loved listening to music. And there were a tiny group of us who were so interested in classical music, in the broader sense. And it was wonderful because the school had this terrific collection of records. I spent hours alone listening to Brahms and Beethoven and so on. And I you know, found bits of music I wouldn't have found otherwise, just sitting there. And so this was one of the great, this is one of the great positive experiences. The record collection and record player at TCS were housed in an alcove off the school's spacious dining room. In off hours, Taylor and his small band of fellow music lovers would turn it into a concert hall, filling the high ceilings with glorious sound. But in other ways, the Ontario boarding school, with its British traditions and prejudices, was a less positive experience for a French-speaking boy with an English name. That was, in a way, quite a shock, the culture shock. If somebody had invented independentism, I might have become an independentist then, because that was a totally different generation. NTCS, different from what the school is now, it was very WASP, very Toronto WASP. And the kind of remarks that were made about French Canadians, including in front of me, because I'm called Charles Taylor, why should anybody ever suspect <laughs> that I would take this amiss? And I was very discreet. But it was I, there. I, it was there. It was kind of tremendous <laughs> hostility towards our kind or contempt, some contempt for the other side of, of my, as it were, background and identity. So I did find this a little bit hard. Plus there was a certain philistinism in those days. I wonder if it's always like that in schools. I mean, you know, people who wrote poetry and listened to classical music were considered very weird. <laughs> Charles Taylor graduated from TCS in 1949. He returned to Montreal to attend McGill. There, things opened up for me. I didn't, until a couple of months before I went there, I didn't know what I was going to study. But I was very interested in history, so I threw myself into honors history. 
which I've never regretted. I mean, I've never left in a certain sense. Uh, all this stuff that I do now is very much seen in a narrative or historical dimension. And it was really quite a extraordinary opening for me. From McGill, Charles Taylor went to Oxford on a Rhodes Scholarship. As part of his course of study, he began reading philosophy, the kind of philosophy that then prevailed at Oxford, sometimes called analytic philosophy. Among its hallmarks were the notions, first, that natural science is the model of all positive knowledge, and second, that knowledge consists entirely of ideas in the mind. I thought this is crazy. This can't, can't be true. So I cast around, and actually a friend of mine who is a sort of Russian origin with a French background and a sort of mixture of all these things, said, well, you might be interested in this. And he handed me a copy of Merleau-Ponty's Phénoménologie de la Perception, right? which had come out a few years before. Didn't, was, didn't exist in English then. It was still only in French. And it just, that just blew my the mind. Phenomenology of perception. That's right. Just absolutely turned everything around. I thought, this is where I want to go. This is what I want to develop. That is this picture of human agency, human knowledge, as being the knowledge of an embodied being, knowledge which is partly through being in the world, grasping the world, being able to do things in the world, that shapes our very understanding and perception, which we can then go beyond to take a radically disengaged stance of the world for certain purposes, like doing, let's say, natural science, but which is something that we never fully escape. And we couldn't even get to that advanced stance if we weren't first and foremost in the world as engaged, embodied beings. Now, that's what Merleau-Ponty brilliantly described. Of course, he was building on Heidegger, building on Husserl, but I read him first and went back to them afterwards. And in a certain sense, it affected my whole idea of what philosophy could be in a sense, even more than those others, because Merleau-Ponty had an extraordinary style. His style, in order to put this point across, which is very difficult to make really clear and really vivid for people, the idea of our being embodied beings, he had, he, as it were, lapsed into or never left the style, which is more like a novelist style, describing our surroundings. He was obviously a great reader of Post. Proust is very often cited, and he was kind of Proust-like. And so there were two kind of clashes that this book produced in my, or helped to articulate. The content of the philosophy was very different, and the style of the philosophy was very different. Philosophy in the style of the French novelist Marcel Proust was entirely foreign to Oxford, where clear, clean, conceptual distinctions ruled the roost. But there was interest in bringing the two camps into contact. And in 1958, a few years after Charles Taylor first encountered Merleau-Ponty, a summit meeting was organized at an old abbey in France. Many of the great figures of the time were there, among them Gilbert Ryle from Oxford and W. V. Quine from Harvard for the Anglo-American school, and from the French side, Jean Val, and Merleau-Ponty, who had been one of the organizers. We had this great meeting in Royaumont in France where somebody said we absolutely must bring analytic and continental British and French philosophy together. So there was this kind of great face-off in which all the famous figures, I mean, Ryle and Austin and Quine on one hand and Merleau-Ponty and Jean Val and, and on the other hand, got together and had complete non-communication for three days. It was a really remarkable experience in which nothing, absolutely nothing communicated either direction, except for people like myself who were already... <laughs> Running back and forth. Yeah. So, I mean, it was kind of reprise of our whole family situation, if you like, in Quebec. And it was kind of a very familiar situation I'm trying to explain. And... Nothing communicated. Despite this standoff, 
At least one of the English philosophers who attended the meeting at Royaumont was interested in trying to understand Merleau-Ponty better. This was J.L. Austin. He had nudged analytic philosophy a little closer to the continental perspective with his idea of speech acts, that speech is a performance and not just a statement of facts. But in the end, the gulf proved too wide. Austin had great ambitions to be a chef d'école, to be a great philosophical leader and pathbreaker. And he met Merleau-Ponty and he heard Merleau-Ponty. Now, Merleau-Ponty, you could hear a pin drop. He had immense charisma on his side, or as it were, among his people. And he had this marvelous capacity of expressing himself verbally as well as on paper. And Austin was very deeply impressed by this. And he had a group that met every Saturday in Oxford, and I was kind of subpoenaed to join the group <laughs> and explain the, the magic of the, what, what, was the, <laughs> what was the great... So we opened film, and we ran through a couple of sentences, and then he said, Taylor, what does that mean? I said, just... <laughs> You can't take it that way. We'll have to take longer chunks, and then we'll be able to see what he's getting. No, 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 tell me. What does that mean? So we had this tremendous set of battles over the text, <laughs> purely methodological, I mean, of how we should try to take it. And in the end, he gave up the enterprise, and I just left and went off. But you could see that there was a totally different style. With this analytic style, Little chunks of text, individual sentences had to be focused on, and you could say exactly what they were contributing. With this other style, we had something utterly different. We had something more like a flow, a novelistic flow, and then out of that emerges a series of theses that you can indeed write down, but that's not the way he was communicating. So I had a kind of mixed style in a certain sense because I've had to publish in the analytic world, let's make this comprehensible. But at the same time, I see the tremendous force of that other, that other style. The analytic philosophy that Charles Taylor had been taught at Oxford held that we know the world by a detached observation that allows us to form a mental picture of it. Maurice Merleau-Ponty, in his Phenomenology of Perception, insisted that we actually know the world from the inside, because that's where we are, inside our bodies, inside our situations, in touch with the world as we feel our way along. Analytic philosophy breaks things down into their component parts, looking for meaning at the level of the individual word or sentence. What does that mean, Taylor, as J.L. Austin thundered? Merleau-Ponty saw meaning as a property of the whole web of words by which it is expressed. Taylor, characteristically, worked back and forth between these views, as he had at the meeting at Royaumont, and much of his future work would grow out of his attempt to assign each of these styles their proper place in our understanding of things. But this would be a work of many years and as he completed his undergraduate degree at Oxford and carried on with graduate study, he had a lot of other things on his mind as well. As a student at McGill, he had already been politically active, first as a liberal and then moving left to the CCF. In England, he became involved in the Labour Party and was one of the founders of a journal that recently celebrated its 50th anniversary, the New Left Review, originally the Universities and Left Review. After I graduated, which was in 55, and I started on my you know, graduate work, I started an immensely long period of goofing off, much to the unease of my supervisors. Because in 56, there was the great constellation of events in Britain and France, of course, Suez, and in Eastern Europe, Hungary, the crushing by the Soviets of the Hungarian Revolution. And there was a great coming together of people who'd been on the left, some ex-communists, some not, some labor and 
other kinds of anarchists and so on. We got to rethink all this. And out of that emerged Universities and Left Review, which was not just a review, but it had all these clubs in which, you know, various cities, including London, but also elsewhere, where people would meet and we'd send a speaker or be a speaker and start a discussion. And then was merged with another such magazine to found New Left Review a few years later. So that whole movement took an immense amount of time and effort and energy and and I didn't... So it was only goofing off from the point of view of your teacher. That's right. From their point of view, it was just, you know, what what is going on? <laughs> Every term, your poor supervisor has to prepare an account of what you've been doing. <laughs> and you say, well, what? <laughs> what am I going to say? In the, <clears throat> and I also went for several months to Vienna because... I wanted to give a hand with the Hungarian refugee students who were flowing across the border. So I took you know, six months of, even of the New Left Review. And so there was a lot of explanation to do, not entirely successful. Tell me Back. about that, if you yeah. will. Well, there was, I belong to an organization which has been very powerful in Canada and still is, World University Service, right? And I sort of connected up with it in, in Europe and the issue was, can we find the students among them and find ways of getting them somewhere else and getting them scholarships and getting them into universities, right? And, you know, it wasn't terribly hard because there was such a wave of sympathy for the Hungarians everywhere so that we got, you know, a lot of people out. The only problem was we could see that there were other people who'd been thought of as displaced persons from somewhere else who've been, you know, moldering away in camps who didn't have the same privileges. So in a way, we kind of put some of them into the stream and got them out. But basically, we had this huge, really this huge operation, which got everybody out without remainder. I mean, they didn't need to stay in Austria. They all got out. And some of my later colleagues at McGill and so on and elsewhere in Montreal had been people that I had known as students who'd gone through. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1 and Sirius 137. Today's program is the first of five broadcasts about the thought of Canadian philosopher Charles Taylor. The series is presented by David Cayley. Charles Taylor's political excursions, his goofing off, may have exasperated his supervisors and interrupted his graduate work, but he was still gradually earning his spurs as a philosopher. Believing human beings to be creatures who cannot be understood without taking into account how they understand themselves, he devoted his dissertation to the field of behavioral psychology where people were then treated as scientific objects, systems of behavior whose self-understandings were quite beside the point. This went under the name of behaviorism. Citing the laboratory training of animals as evidence, psychologists like B.F. Skinner at Harvard and Clark Hall at Yale attempted to model behavior in terms that were entirely mechanical and objective. Behaviorism was part of this, if you like, evidence-oriented science. And it took the following line. I mean, thinking that something happens inside, and you can't be sure that that's happening. I mean, you, all you see is behavior when you walk, look at animals and human beings. So there must be a way of explaining all this, which simply deals with behavior and overt response. Or if you want to put it physiologically, you know, stimulus, uh, reception, and motor activity, or muscle activity, and so on. So we can just totally ignore all this junk about the inner and mind and thinking, <laughs> desire and purpose. We can just cut that all out and have a science of behavior. So that was behaviorism. And then, of course, its, its basic connection was a stimulus-response connection, where you put people through a training, or chickens, or with pigeons, actually, with Skinner, or rats with hull, through training whereby certain stimuli trigger off certain responses. And eventually we'll get to understand all of human life this way. 
Charles Taylor's Refutation of Behaviorism became his first book, called The Explanation of Behavior, published in 1964. By then, the influence of behaviorism was already beginning to wane, but not its basic premise that human beings can be modeled as biologically determined systems. And this is what interests Taylor, that as soon as this premise is defeated in one place, it changes its clothes and pops up somewhere else. In a certain sense, behaviorism killed itself off by ridicule. You couldn't, thinking is something you couldn't do without. But then that kind of, if you like, mechanistic and materialistic and reductive standpoint was saved by the digital computer. Digital computer surely is something unquestionably material. It works by causal, efficient causal relations. And it, it thinks, I suppose, you could say. So maybe we are just very complex digital computers. So we can't do without the inside, but we can explain the inside, the thinking and so on, like as we, as we explain the operations of a digital computer, which, you know, given certain input, will produce certain output. And that was the new dominant paradigm. So it's as though there were a hunger for this kind of account, which, faced with the untenability of one variant of it, would invent another variant. And in a certain sense, we're living with that ever since. And we have, in the work of another Montrealer, Stephen Pinker, you know, now famous at Harvard, the same kind of reductive account weaving in computers and so on as a picture of the mind. And this kind of stuff is, he also writes well. It has to be, has to be given to him very definitely. That's part of his success. But this is tremendously successful. The Language Instinct and all the books that have come out since are tremendously popular. And people quote them and, and speak of certain of their basic theses as though they were just, you know, Obviously right. According to Charles Taylor, Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker became a bestseller with books like The Language Instinct by playing the melody of behaviorism in a new and more contemporary key. Drives and conditioned responses simply gave way to genes and evolutionary adaptations. That the theory seems, as Taylor says, just obviously right is because it belongs to a familiar modern lineage. It's what we think a scientific theory should be. Reductive, it explains something complex by some simpler underlying feature. Atomistic, it takes a whole phenomenon apart into its constituent bits. And materialistic, the effect in question is shown to have some physical or mechanical cause. Taylor calls this our default mode of thinking, the one we tend often unconsciously to fall back on and treat as natural, the one that keeps endlessly popping up in new guises. It depends on our viewing the world as if from the outside, from a position of detachment or disengagement. The origins of this disengaged stance, in Taylor's view, lie in the 17th century, when it was first adopted by thinkers like René Descartes in France and John Locke in England. These philosophers asked new questions about knowledge, about how we get knowledge in the first place, and about how we can test its validity. The attempt to answer such questions among philosophers goes by the name of epistemology, and Charles Taylor has given a lot of thought to this modern preoccupation and its fateful consequences. Episteme is the Greek word for science or knowledge, and so it's the ology, so it's the attempt to understand what knowledge is, what is knowledge, and when is knowledge valid, and so on. And But, you know, this isn't, uh, so it looks like something that you evidently have to have. I mean, if you're a philosopher, you have to have your theory of that and theory of that and theory of knowledge. But, in fact, the way epistemology has developed in the modern world is of, of a very peculiar kind. And so maybe if you'd asked 
Aristotle, what his epistemology was, he would have been a little bit puzzled. So, I mean, when you read all my works, it's obvious. Isn't it? I mean, I don't need to <laughs> elaborate on this. <clears throat> it's not a, not a big problem, but it became a big problem in the modern world. And it became a big problem because knowledge began to be seen in the light of a certain number of basic ideas and images. And once it was seen in the light of those ideas and images, then suddenly a lot of big problems arose. So what are the basic ideas? The basic ideas that seem to be self-evident that people started from, and I'm thinking of someone like Descartes. Descartes is a really important founding figure of this, but it goes on through Locke and Hume and goes on today. Well, what would knowledge be? Knowledge would be when the ideas we have in our minds about the world, about things that are outside, correspond to the things that are really outside. Because how do we ever get knowledge? Well, the things outside, you know, bombard the senses, and that creates, when it moves up into the mind, it creates ideas in the mind, and we put these ideas together and get an overall picture. So there is always this separation between the things that are really out there on one hand and the ideas we have in the mind on the other. Well, once you put things in those terms, a sort of demon of skepticism arises and the question must come up, well, do they really correspond? And, yeah, you think so? Well, how do you know? I mean, supposing, you know, Descartes has this very interesting and worrying supposition. Supposing there were an evil demon out there that was systematically distorting the way in which things come into their senses and your mind so that when you think there's a tree there, there's really an elephant or, and vice versa. How would you ever know? The thing is systematically done so that there's a coherence in your experience, but it's the wrong coherence. Or the way people put it in the modern world, supposing... We're looking out there, we're looking out into an autumn scene and we see um, red leaves, but uh, I, I see red leaves. You see maybe you know green leaves or yellow leaves and so on. How will we ever know? Because what the word we're using, both using red, means for me something that we understand as red, <laughs> means for you something that you experience as green or yellow, and we'll never find out. So all these kind of skeptical issues, they really can keep you awake at night. You can be very, very worried about them. Now, this all comes from a kind of construal of what knowing is, which I want to call representational or mediational. We, have, we know the world through the ideas we have in our mind. That's Descartes' is a famous line that I always quote in a letter to one of his correspondents. You know, I only know the things in the world out there through, par l'entremise de, he speaks, through the intermediary of the ideas I have in my mind, right? And if you have that representational or mediational view, then you can't help generating these skeptical issues. And, you know, the thing goes on, of course, it's transposed. Descartes was a dualist, he believed the mind was something sep separate. Most philosophers today are monistic mechanists. Everything is mechanism, everything is physical and can be understood by physical science. But the same kind of picture of the mind and world is recreated. You see, we, in a mechanistic perspective, well, what happens? Our senses are bombarded, bombarded by, and then the retina gets certain impressions and it passes into the cortex, and then the computer, which is the brain, <laughs> gets to work on it and develops this whole picture of what the world is is like, but the same kind of questions can arise. And it's penetrated popular culture. You take a film like The Matrix, right, where the whole idea of the plot is that people feel themselves to be in really in a world where they're meeting other people and having experiences, but really they are brains in a, some kind of vat being fed input. And they're not out there at all. They're just having the shadow of these experiences. Right? That Again, that looks like a real possibility within this particular view of knowledge. Now, my whole goal in life has been to show that this is nonsense. This is not the way it actually works. We don't have inner cinemas in our minds. 
We're in contact with the world in a very real sense because we are, above all, bodily agents who only actually develop some kind of sense of what it is to be in the world by starting off as babes interacting with it, physically interacting with it. You know, small children, they put things in their mouths and they move them around and they try to get over there and they eventually succeed and they grab it and so on. That's what knowledge is really deeply based on. It's based on physical contact with, coming to grips with, actually moving things around, dealing with them, uh, you know, eating them, walking on them, <laughs> fleeing them, and so on. All that kind of understanding is the understanding we have of the meanings of things, of the way that they disposed around us as things we can do things with, or get to, or avoid, or get around, and so on. Now, that bodily, embodied experience is totally wiped out in this computer-type account. All we have figuring in the account is the micro-affecting of my senses by particular impingings, right? We don't, that the whole existence of this kind of embodied experience is wiped out, is set aside, doesn't have any role. So it says this is a materialist theory. It's actually profoundly anti-material theory in the way material really appears in our lives, primarily as something that we as agents are, are dealing with. It's a kind of angelic theory. And I think there's a very deep mistake involved in that about what human beings are. And it's not only one that Descartes happened to have and Locke happened to have, but it's become so deeply embedded in modern culture that it looks to lots of people like the way, sure, we have to understand it. And you get this extraordinary phenomenon that a popular film like Matrix can be a popular film. So that a lot of people can somehow imagine themselves as being conceivably brains and vats. This shows how deeply it's sunk down into the culture. This is something that you said Aristotle wasn't worried about, whereas yeah. Descartes is deeply worried about it. Yeah. He's crucially worried about it. Why wasn't Aristotle worried about it? Well, Aristotle wasn't worried about it because he, if we can look at these two kinds of theories, what I call mediational theories, and then the opposite of that would be contact theories, that we really are in contact with the world. Aristotle had his own contact theory, and it was really like, like this, that everything that exists in the world is shaped by some inner, you know, following Plato, you can call it idea, or ados was his word, or form, right? So horses grow to be full horses because the horse form is, is we're at work in this particular instance of matter, and we see trees out there because the tree form is at work in those instances of matter, and so on. Now, that same form also shapes, in its own way, our senses, or shapes our intellect, right? The same form is shaping the object and my intellect, right? So the intellect and the object are one, right? The same. Very, very powerful statement of contact. There isn't a gap. The gap isn't there whereby you can start wondering, oh, does one side of it correspond to the other side? Now, what destroyed that, of course, was the beginnings of mechanistic philosophy of nature, which you find beginning with Galileo and then later Newton. But Descartes is writing in the wake of Galileo, you see. The assumption is the world out there is to be understood in terms of matter in motion, of particles, and that must apply to everything material. So there's no more place for the forms in the Platonic Aristotelian mode. They're totally set aside. And on the contrary, if all this stuff out there, all this material stuff is to be understood mechanistically, well, what is the place of mind, of thinking, of feeling, of purpose, right? It's very worrying. So this problem goes on being a problem to such a degree that if... If I say in a modern philosophy class, or even anywhere in the modern world, the mind-body problem, people say, yeah, yeah, 
And they all sort of vaguely understand what it means because the body in this mind-body problem is seen mechanistically and the mind, we don't see how it could have a place in a purely mechanistic universe, right? So, yeah, there is a problem putting them together. And all these theories, I mean, we get the great reducers or great reductivists, people like, you know, Dan Dennett with his, one of his books was Consciousness Explained, which everyone said, <laughs> explained away. <laughs> because it's a very, to me, totally feeble attempt to explain consciousness. and But that's because it's something extremely difficult. Pinker, in one of his books, has this disarmingly frank statement. He said, well, in my theory, it doesn't have any place for consciousness, intentionality, meaning, the self, morality, goes on. <laughs> so a reader like me begins to feel at the end of this, I mean, scrap the theory. But he's saying, no, 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 that's fine. I mean, all that stuff is very sp spooky anyway, right? The real hard stuff I have explained, and that's what really counts, see? So in a certain sense, that's one way of dealing with the... But there always is this problem, this problem of explaining, if you have this mechanistic account, explain the residual, the really human interesting stuff, why people have consciousness, feelings. Now, that would have been incomprehensible to Aristotle. What's the mind-body problem? Tell me what the mind-body problem is again. <laughs> See what I mean? <laughs> and it would be great to get into another, as it were, cultural shift where people would once more say, what's the mind-body problem? But... That's the interesting thing. I don't have the utopian hope that this will happen. I just have the hope that if you sit a lot of people down with several years of good philosophy, they will end up saying, you know, this is an ill-conceived problem. But it's not something that's going to be spread in the whole culture, perhaps ever again. Charles Taylor predicts that the modern Cartesian account of the nature of our knowledge will remain the default mode in our culture. So deeply entrenched is it in our institutions and our practices. But he also describes it quite flatly as nonsense and as a deep mistake. So why would we continue with what Taylor has elsewhere described as a terrible and fateful illusion and a hydra whose serpentine heads wreak havoc throughout the intellectual culture of modernity, the hydra being that many-headed mythical beast that regrew two heads when one was cut off. The answer to this question, Taylor says, is that standing back from the world and conceiving it only as a representation to our minds has been a source of power, control, and political freedom. See, there are two big things that that kind of very clear disengaged thinking gets for you. One is really kind of total clarity and domination of the field that you're talking about, which you don't get in another kind of discourse. We go back to talking about Merleau-Ponty, not only had this thesis about our being embodied, but had a way of putting it across in almost novelistic form. That's something which you soak up from the whole paragraph, but it's not clearly demarcated point. You're getting inside a certain way of seeing your world, but there's not a diamond uh, clear concentration on a single isolatable point there. So you have to go with the flow. You have to give yourself to that. And that seems to be opposed to this kind of clear understanding when you clearly dominate it. Obviously, the figure of Descartes is central to this. That's exactly what he's trying to do all the time. Get it absolutely crystal clear. Break it down to the small details. That's why they're very atomistic. They want to break down the small details, see how they fit together. So that's one thing you get from that. You get a sense of really of dominating. Knowledge is power. You get a sense of dominating the phenomena because you can grasp them and then you can manipulate them. And the other thing that's going on in Locke is, he thinks, developing the liberty of the, of the individual, 
subject that we've been put upon by all these foggy expressions being used by priests and others to get control over us and stop us really clearly thinking. So clear thinking and individual liberty are kind of linked. And Locke is very clear about this. So you get individual liberty, clear thinking, political freedom. They all go together. In Locke, you get line up between the political structure is there because there's a contract. Everyone signs. The language is there because, in a certain sense, there's a contract. See, everybody's lexicon is their own control. You could speak your totally own language. It'd be kind of inconvenient. But, so you have to kind of agree to, we all have to agree to do this. Whereas, if I say that is the metaphysically right expression for something like that, I'm, I'm telling you, you, you haven't got control of your lexicon anymore. This is something that you must be using, you see. So the, there's a certain notion of the freedom of the individual, the freedom to contract, the freedom to make agreements, and the building of all these common cultural elements, a language, a polity, out of individual decisions and agreement. Now that is that mixture of atomism, control, freedom, that's still very powerful in our culture. In the modern world, Charles Taylor argues, a view of knowledge as the sovereign property of individual minds is bound up with many cherished goods, notably our political freedom and our technological reach. And yet, he has also said that this view of knowledge is mistaken and nonsensical as a description of how the world actually is for human beings. It's mistaken, in his opinion, because it leaves out all the ways in which we are not sovereign individuals who make the world, but embodied beings who are part of the world, who belong to each other, to a place, to a language, to a society, things we have not chosen or made and which we have only a very limited capacity to remake. This dilemma in many ways, structures Taylor's thought. His response to it has been to try to develop what he calls a philosophical anthropology, an account of what human beings are that is more faithful to our experience than the disengaged and objectifying attitude that founds modern science. I'll look into this philosophical anthropology in the next episode of this series, tomorrow at this time. Please join me then. On Ideas, you've listened to the first program in our five-hour series, The Malaise of Modernity, Charles Taylor in Conversation. The series continues tomorrow at this time. Each show will be available as a podcast after its broadcast, at cbc.ca slash podcasting or it can be streamed from our website at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can also sign up for our weekly newsletter there and find out about upcoming programs. Tonight's program was prepared and presented by David Cayley with the help of Dave Field and Bernie Lucht. Archival research, Ken Pewley. Our webmaster is Liz Naj. The executive producer of Ideas is Bernie Lucht. I'm Paul Kennedy. The Hourly News is next.